welcome to How Fitting, the podcast about creating fashion and growing a business that fits your customer, your lifestyle, and your values. I'm your host, Allison Haynes. Today, I'm joined by Tigas Ketema of Tigas Petite. So welcome to the show. Hi, Allison. Thank you for having me. Yeah. For those listening who are just meeting you for the first time, could you share a little bit about who you are and what you do? Absolutely. My name is Tigas Katema, and I am the founder and CEO of Tigas Petites. Tigas Petites is the first luxury label made for petite women exclusively, so women under 5'4". We launched in October of 2022, and all of our pieces are designed and manufactured in New York City. As for myself, I have a background in global marketing, in fashion, and film as well. I founded this line. Actually, the idea came to me about four years ago because I was having such a hard time finding well-constructed, high-quality clothes for work. And my options were either wearing boxy suits that even when I got them tailored, I felt ridiculous in, Or I tried to kind of force casual pieces I had into professional or formal attire. And at some point, I realized that I could be the solution. So uh, the idea came from there. And here we are. I've launched and, uh, you know, I've been operational for a few months now. And it's very exciting. Yeah, congrats. That's amazing. Thank you. Yeah, so I want to kind of start at the beginning of things. So, and I... Mm -hmm. I I can totally rate because I'm also, I'm 5'2". Oh, perfect. And, <laughs> and yeah, I totally get it of it, like having, having a foot off the bottom of a formal gown <sighs> sometimes is not even good enough to make it fit yeah. um, or, you know, for work or whatever you're doing. So that's kind of how I got into making clothing before I even, you know, started my own business too, was just things didn't fit me. So I wanted to be able to make it um, better, but yeah, I can totally relate to that. So, yes. Yeah, go ahead. No, you understand my pain. It sounds like uh, mm-hmm. our journey, our journeys are similar or aligned in some way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So your background so you mentioned you you do have like somewhat of a background in fashion. Like what was that like? Like what what were you doing kind of prior to um, starting this brand? Yeah, so I, uh, my undergrad degree was actually in marketing, marketing okay. and international business. And then after, after working for a few months, I went to Parsons for fashion design, got my associate's degree in, the, in fashion design after my uh, bachelor's degree in marketing. And I worked in the accessories uh, sector for a few years, specifically watches. I was a product developer at a watch company. Okay. And yeah, and it was a lot of fun. I really loved working in fashion. And after that, I have, I have you know, um, a, a lot of interests. So I wanted to get my master's in global policy, went off to London, and I did that. I came back to the US and ended up, long story short, I ended up in marketing. And uh, I've been working in marketing for about 
10 years now, nine, 10 years. And I've always kind of been a little sad that I left the fashion industry. Mm -hmm. Uh, Things just, life just happened so that I ended up back in marketing. I love marketing. You know, it's something that you can apply to anything and I've been applying it to my business. So it's a really good skill set. Yeah, I was going to say there's a lot of crossover. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, But with fashion, so that's my background in fashion. I've never actually worked in the garment business in terms of clothing, you know, I've done um, hardware and accessories. So Mm -hmm. four years ago, when this idea came to me, I actually reached out to a design consultancy to help me kind of manage the entire process. Uh, I did start with actually kind of like you, I was kind of adjusting my own clothes because nothing fit me, as you know, and I, um, I ended up injuring myself. It's a very funny story I can say now looking back on it I had a sewing uh accident I say I was sewing so much and without I was just really passionate you know and without Mm -hmm. a break I ended up injuring my wrists and my elbows and my shoulders and I couldn't sew for about two years I had to go to PT and I was still so passionate um so I was thinking about how can I still make this happen and I went actually to an alumni event at Parsons with the business of fashion. And I heard about these consultancies that can help you take your idea from scratch to production. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's how I got in touch with my current partners. And that's how we worked through the entire kind of journey together to now uh, launching. So I think I probably answered more than the question you asked me. Yeah, no, um, that, that's yeah. so great to hear. I always love to hear kind of the background of how everything came together because it's like you look at the finished thing and it's that everyone's like, wow, that's so cool. Like, how did you do that? It's amazing. And then, you know, just like hearing the background of it is like equally inspiring, I think, to like what led up to the brand launch itself. Yeah, for sure. And it's it's interesting because now that we're talking about it, it's maybe I've started to talk about it recently, but I haven't actually sat down and talked about the entire journey mm-hmm. just because right now it's, you know, launch time and I'm focused on, you know, getting um, the name recognized and selling and I look back and I think, wow, it took four years to get here. And it's it's really exciting. And there were certainly ups and downs, the injury being one of it, mm-hmm. one of those uh, downs. But there was also the pandemic. There was also mm-hmm. supply chain shortages. Actually, I finished my samples. I actually did first round of samples, went all the way to SMS and decided that it wasn't in line with my vision. And started mm-hmm. from scratch. And I can wow. I can tell you a little bit more about that. Um, yeah. So like what was, I'm curious to know, like what was the original maybe like vision that you're working towards with those samples? And then what changed with the vision that made you kind of start over? Because, yeah. you know, I'm sure that was a lot of work that goes into getting all the way to salesman samples, which is um for those listening that aren't uh, familiar with the acronym SMS, that's what that is. Yes. Yes. So my vision was and is um, one to make 
high-end fashion for petite women. So petite women often, speaking from experience, feel like an afterthought in the fashion industry and especially high fashion mm-hmm. with brands that have petite selections. Usually the petite selection is pretty petite, no pun intended. It's pretty small. <laughs> there aren't a lot mm-hmm. of you know options. And even there, my experience has been, it just felt like they cut off the bottom. Mm-hmm. With no consideration around proportions, where the waist seam falls, where the princess seam, shoulder seams fall. And so even shopping in the petite sections was was equally almost de- demoralizing. So one was to make a line that fit the needs, the, the proportion needs of petite women. Mm-hmm. And specifically, I was thinking of professional petite women. And um, the reason for that, and it was, you know, I came up with this idea around the time that work was becoming more casual, even before the pandemic happened. I remember reading about the big banks lifting their dress code, their business, business casual dress code and saying, oh, you can come in jeans. Mm-hmm. And um, and then, of course, after that uh, pandemic happened, uh, you know, work from home. And then even now we still have a work from home slash hybrid kind of uh, trend that we're still seeing. Mm-hmm. But one thing with with pa- powerful petite women or petite women in positions, uh, decision making positions in professional environments is that the stakes are always high. So you always have to look the part. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is to take up space to be taken seriously, kind of. And the thing, you know, around the time when I was hearing the news, the thing that didn't make me lose heart was thinking about Silicon Valley and the Silicon Valley uniform. So it's very, very casual. Jeans and hoodie is the Silicon Valley uniform, right? Mm-hmm. But when those same folks, let's say, you know, have to make an appearance in, in front of Congress for one reason or, or another, they don't come in their uniforms. They come dressed up in suits because the stakes are high. Mm-hmm. And as a petite woman in the corporate world, in um, in and not just in the office, but even outside of that, I feel I felt, and speaking to other women, I um, have found this to be true that how I looked and how I presented myself was always significant. There mm-hmm. was never a time where I felt like I could show up in a hoodie in jeans and feel equally kind of powerful and assertive. So if clothes were, um, at least in, in the professional environments, if, yeah. um, so as, as a medium, I thought um, it's important for women to feel that way. And I look at the symbols of power in the business world. And for me coming up in, um, again, marketing business background, having lived on Wall Street and around Wall Street, it's the male suit. So it's menswear, mm-hmm. highly tailored, high quality menswear. And I thought about how can I take the essence of that and put it on a petite body, feminize it, make it, don't lose the power of all of that, but make it very feminine and sophisticated. And that's where Sigus Petites came from. And what happened in terms of how did that vision get blurred or lost along the way was I also wanted to make, so we're getting more niche as, as I go. I also wanted to make this line accessible for petite women with curves. Mm-hmm. So anyone with an hourglass or pear shape, and it, not to say it, that it exclusively only fits those women, but it definitely accommodates 
those kinds of women with high quality fabrics with a very structured um, silhouette. Um, and that's what Which is got hard lost. to find and hard to fit. <laughs> Hard. It's exactly. It's hard to fit, and I can talk about the kind of fabrics I ended up selecting because of those requirements. Um, but what happened along the way was, following industry standards, I used a fit model to mm -hmm. develop the samples. I couldn't fit. If I mean, finding a petite fit model was hard enough, and of those petite models, couldn't find someone who was quite the right proportion. I found someone mm -hmm. who was close, so I went with it. And and I went through the end through uh, salesman samples, which are the the last round of prototypes, basically before you actually go to production. Mm -hmm. And I put on the dresses that I up until this point had been kind of orchestrating from the outside. And I had the same feeling as I do when I go to dressing rooms, you know, now or be, like outside of my line was the same thing of, oh, it's, it's tight around my hips and really loose in my upper body. And I felt mm -hmm. so upset about it um, just because it was my brand and I it was giving the same experience as everything else on the market. And at mm -hmm. that point I realized, uh, they say the sunk cost argument is never a good one and it's true. <laughs> I'd spent a lot of money and, a, and a, not a lot of time. So I could have said, you know, this is what's going to accommodate the most kinds of bodies. And that was the, the one thing um, some of my consultants were saying is that you want to use something that's middle of the road so you can accommodate more kinds of bodies. That's what the fashion industry does now. And quite frankly, in trying to serve everyone, it doesn't serve, serve anyone. No yeah, yeah, exactly. So I said, you know what, I'm just gonna go super niche uh, if I don't sell anything, that's fine. I'll wear all the dresses. At least I know that I'll be, mm -hmm. I would have been true to my vision. So at that point, I decided to go ahead and be the fit model myself. And I mm -hmm. developed the samples exactly as I wanted them in terms of the, the focus was really around the waist to hip ratio. I wanted to make that uh, more significant than what's found on the market. And then I went through the second round of samples. Uh, supply chain shortages hit. The fabrics I were using were all gone, couldn't go to production, <laughs> had to wait six oh, months no. or seven months. And some of the qualities actually had run out entirely, discontinued, and others had to be redyed and, you know, sent over from the mills. Got through that, went to production, you know, some delays after that as well. And then I finally launched in October of 2022. Wow. Yeah, that's quite the journey. Yeah. And... <laughs> I can imagine that was a super difficult uh, decision to start over in order to like make it more niche and more true to your vision and like to go against the recommendation of the agency you're working with. I bet that was a really, really hard decision, but I I, I agree with you that being niche is a good thing. <laughs> that, you know, you're at least speaking to one group of people super clearly and they're going to love you for it rather than like being lukewarm and like so-so to many people. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So um, were you, so it sounds like you weren't super involved with kind of the first set in terms of like being there, like were you there for fittings and everything or like did you change kind of your involvement when you re 
started on the at the new samples? Yes. So I was um, I was actually super involved all the way through along the way. Okay. Uh, what did change was after that resampling experience or at that moment, I decided to trust myself more and to be mm. more assertive. Now, ultimately, the partners I, I was working with, I hired them for their expertise. So they were doing exactly what they were supposed to do. And many mm -hmm. times I have um, gone, kind of listened to what, what they've said and, you know, gone down the path that they recommended. And I've been very happy that I have. But now I'm able to better recognize instances where I should trust my gut or if my gut is saying just knowing the difference between that gut feeling or that small whisper that says no go this way instead mm -hmm. knowing the difference between that and fear of the unknown it's mm -hmm. it just takes some time and, and honestly I think it takes experience and maturity to be able to discern between the two and it's you know this is about me launching a brand and a fashion line but it's also deeper than that. It's really about following a vision or responding to something that's kind of circulating your mind, heart, however you want to see it. Mm -hmm. And I would say one thing that didn't make me, the journey was a very difficult one, but the reason I kept on going and I kept on bouncing back was because I felt so passionate about what I was doing, what I was, uh, to use the analogy, but it was like responding to a call. You know, there's that saying mm -hmm. of like having a call in your life as, as, as it were. And I was so passionate about that, that ultimately it didn't matter. And I mean this sincerely, I was so focused on what I was doing. It didn't matter to me if I finished the whole thing and it flopped and no sales, mm -hmm. no results. That was, that was something that I was fine with because I just needed to create this thing that didn't exist and that at some point I felt like oh it's just only me I had these moments of you know I kind of joked about it earlier but I have had these moments in dressing rooms where I've felt like I was a freak of nature and I'm not exaggerating mm -hmm. I felt like there was something mm -hmm. wrong with me and actually outside of those situations I'm pretty happy with myself and my body and my appearance um, but it it makes you feel, especially after a day of shopping and not finding something. And you yeah. always talk about it in a very, you know, it sounds frivolous, right? Oh, I went shopping today, couldn't find anything. And no one would ever, no one that you're telling that to would ever stop and say, oh, that must have been a difficult <laughs> experience. Mm -hmm. And even as I'm talking to you right now, I've never stopped to say outside of like uh you know, complaining in a very jovial way. I've never stopped to say, oh, this is really affecting my psyche. I'm feeling mm -hmm. like there's something wrong with my appearance. And it's a feeling that, again, having come when I was doing my market research, I based it on personal encounters I've had with other women who've encountered this. Mm -hmm. And I also, um, and I did some research as well online. Uh, I actually got my first library card as an adult in New York City nice. so I could go consult period periodicals and you know journals uh and actually they yeah. didn't have a lot of data on about petites but about fashion they did so um so yeah so basically finding that this experience wasn't just um for me finding that it was more universal than I thought just really 
made me passionate, really lit the fire in me to come up with a solution. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, if I, my whole thing was, if I can just do this, if I can just basically push this thing into the world, I kind of liken it to giving birth, although I've never done that before, but it just feels mm-hmm. like it's your baby and you've had it for so long and you just want to get it out into the world. I said, that's enough for me. And I really feel, you know, as my excitement on the day that we launched was as if though, you know, I had already sold all my inventory. It it really just wasn't uh, about that for me. I was just so excited and happy to have created something that didn't exist in the world, knowing mm-hmm. that it could serve at least even just a handful of people in, in a way that it, it has served me. And having seen, and after I did the the silhouettes and the samples the way I wanted. Mm-hmm. The very first time I saw it on a different body was during the first photo shoot that we did. And I uh, sourced some petite models and that happened to be curvy, uh, hourglass shape and pear shaped. And the dresses fit them perfectly. And it was mm-hmm. an it was just, it was amazing because I, I did at moments I had doubts and I said, hey, you know, I was the fit model for this. I don't have the standard body. What if I really just made this for myself? No one else. Mm-hmm. And uh, the those women came in and different bodies than me. And it just looked so beautiful, fit so well and gave them, and you can see the photos on my website, on, on my um, Instagram gave them yeah, the looking at some of those. Yeah. It it just gave them the the resolve, the feeling that I wanted them to have. Uh yeah. So that that's yeah, I would say that's what changed at that resampling moment is I I became more confident in my vision. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really cool. And so many great points in there. I think very relatable even um like when you mentioned learning to like trust your gut versus, Mm -hmm. you know, follow kind of the recommended advice um, that's given to you and knowing when to follow your vision. And even, I I think it's always a balance when kind of you are your own customer for your brand of how do I make this not just for me, but also make it solve the problem that I, that I, and, you know, so many other women that I know have, yeah. um, it can be, I think it can be a tricky thing to be your own. Like, it's great when you can be your own fit model, but it also, I think comes with its challenges of, um, even be, being able to slightly distance yourself from your own, you know, biases about your body, you know, like your own thoughts about your body in order to kind of look at the design and look at the fit objectively on yourself and, and see the mistakes or the things that need to be changed in the clothing instead of, you know, like you said, we've been so used to as, um, as, you know, size of bodies that are not typically represented in apparel that when we try on something in it and it doesn't look how we want it to that like there's something wrong with us mm-hmm. um and and it's a whole different mind shift when you're being a fit model and having to think about like okay what's wrong with the clothing like it's the clothing <laughs> that needs to fit us it's yes. not like let's not try this on and and think about our own body and what we do or don't like about that and so it can 
it can be a whole different kind of way of looking at fashion and understanding your own body in yeah. relationship with clothing, I think. For sure. And it's interesting because I don't necessarily then consider that first phase of it a mistake because I do mm-hmm. know and see the value in using a fit model um, mm-hmm. and having that distance. So I'm really glad that I got to go on that part of the journey and see it, see see how the fabric fell on a different body and how it moved and, you know, the different decisions that we've made um, that had to do with design. I was so glad that I did that from the outside. And then when I was the fit model, it was about the fit. And mm-hmm. even then, I know it is helpful to also have distance. So I, what I always did was uh, always had videos and pictures taken. Mm-hmm. I relied mm-hmm. on those because the mirror doesn't always tell you the truth. <laughs> so exactly. it's better yep. to do that. Yeah. That's so true. Yeah. I always recommend, even if you're not the one doing your own fit modeling, but taking photos and videos um, and just keeping a record of those in the tech pack during development, just so that you can look back and be like, why did we change this? And yes. be like, oh yeah, this is, this is why. Or, you know, this is how it was fitting in the previous sample. Did we fix that on the next sample? Yeah. So did you change the designs at all between this, the first sampling and the second one, or was it really just um, reworking the fit? Yes, I did change the designs and I started, so I designed the, the, the three styles. So I have three distinct styles and three colorways each in my launch collection. They're mm-hmm. all dresses. And I came to the agency with the designs and they converted it into CAD, which is the basically technical drawing version mm-hmm. of it. And, and, and this is for, uh, you know, your, the aud- audience members who may not be um, yeah. in fashion. I know you, mm-hmm. you know what a CAD is. And so I, uh, along the way, so the first time we went to sample, I noticed some of the concepts that I had in mind and on paper didn't quite work in Mm -hmm. real life. And as an example, so all of my dresses are play on the power suit, usually Mm -hmm. a man's power suit. And what I tried to do to soften it in in addition to the curvature and, and the structure of it is I added shirting elements. So when you think of, again, that corporate suit that a man wears, it's, um, Think of, you know, kind of like a pinstripe suit. It's mm-hmm. the suit and then the shirt and the tie. So how to convert that into something that a woman could wear? That's not a suit. So I had shirting elements throughout the dresses that used suiting, uh, used wool blends for all of the uh, dresses. And I used more shirting elements on the designs. And as I saw them on samples, I realized that it didn't quite work because my whole intention was to use the shirting elements as kind of pops of color or little pops of surprise. For example, there are the shirting um, fabric is on all of the slits of the dresses, all of the vents. Mm -hmm. So that's a kind of a detail, a surprise, kind of sophisticated uh, detail. And I also used it in other places. Maybe I'd I'd use it for a sleeve or I would use it for a back panel or a panel on the front princess line. 
And the, my, my original designs included that, but looking at it in real life, I realized it wasn't subtle anymore. In fact, it was overpowering and mm. it did not give that kind of level of sophistication that I was looking for. So as one big thing is, as I went through the different rounds of samples, there was less and less of those shirting elements, but then it ended up making all of the pieces look very elegant and it gave them a very classic and timeless look, which is really what I was intending to do because I was developing these, you know, being a slow fashion brand, I was developing these as investment pieces and mm -hmm. I wanted women to wear it year round wherever they were um, and, and at any time. And I want it to be with them for years and could, because it's made of high quality fabric that will endure for years as long as it's uh, looked after properly. And yeah, so that's really the, the evolution of the design changed when I saw it in sample. And actually, this is where using the fit model was a very good experience because I could see mm -hmm. it from a distance. And mm -hmm. I, that's when I decided, okay, this doesn't quite work the way I thought it would. And um, yeah, and then actually the consultancy in there was one area, one dress where uh, on my site, it's called the jean, it has a, a cap sleeves. Mm -hmm. I wanted to keep the cap sleeves using the shirting material and looking at it, they kind of advised me, you know, this looks a little bit more juvenile. It doesn't give that kind of strong uh, look that you're looking for. And that was one where I did decide to go uh, with what they suggested because it didn't feel to me that that, like my gut wanted that or my intuition wanted that it felt like it felt right at some point but then it kind mm -hmm. of shifted so that's to say you know there's also a fine line between being dedicated and committed to your vision and being rigid this journey does require a lot of flexibility mm -hmm. and you have to also decide which hill you will die on there will be many hills. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, uh, it's, again, it's really a matter of trusting yourself and knowing that even if you make a mistake, that mistake will serve you in some way in the future. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a great point. Yeah. And yeah, I think it, development is so much about collaboration, like mm -hmm. with your pattern maker and your sample maker and the designer, you know, whether that's you or somebody else or, um, the factory of, of just making these little tweaks, making sure that like at each step, it's really optimized for like, how can we make, make the best, most high quality product in, in kind of the simplest way, like without overcomplicating the process or the production, how can we kind of make the most of everything to fulfill this vision? And it, it does take a little bit of tweaking or seeing it you know, on a 3D sample or on a live sample or playing with the fabric, you know, at the factory to kind of see like, okay, maybe this didn't quite translate how you wanted it to. And then being flexible of, okay, let's switch to something else. So we're still keeping this original vision, this original goal, but how can we kind of modify the details to better execute and communicate that vision in the, in the final product? Yes, definitely. And fabrics have personalities almost it does introduce do. yeah a new uh as you said a new dimension and a whole new sphere into the process and and that's actually a really good point that you brought that up because it's not I still was happy with the silhouettes that I designed 
but the small details had to change because of how the fabric was behaving on its own and mm -hmm. then how it was interacting with the detail the detailed pieces that I had whether it was the shirting fabric or even the hardware like the zipper and the buttons mm -hmm. uh, and things change either because of shortages you know things are not available or they're not working on the fabric the way you intended them to the button is not going into the hole quite right so all of these things are little things that have to be adjusted along the way and sometimes they do help you in changing your vision it does help you upgrade it sometimes because you come mm -hmm. up with a solution what you know it's interesting like looking at all problems like their challenges is is helpful because then it's kind of like being um you know solution oriented um cuz then you instead of thinking about oh here's a roadblock that's delaying things you can think about oh is this an opportunity does this buy me some time or is this an opportunity to make an adjustment that could make this better? And that's, mm. that's happened just based on even trims that were either not available or became available. And there are just so many tiny little decisions <laughs> that make up yeah. the whole uh, process uh, as, as you know. Yeah, for sure. So with you mentioned the fabric and being high quality, um, what was it like sourcing those fabrics, deciding on fabrics? Like, did you kind of know all the you know, the whole time, like what you were looking for? Or um, was there a little bit of kind of evolution as the samples came to life of what that fabric was going to be? Yes. So that was also something that evolved over time. I originally had wool in mind, again, thinking of wool suits. Mm -hmm. And when I worked with my consult consultants, they advised me that, well, if you want the dresses to contour and curve, you know, the way that I had uh, designed the dresses, then it requires some flexibility and uh, some, some durability as well, especially the flexibility part it was something that could only be addressed if I went with a wool blend mm. and that was something at first that I was kind of unsure about and I thought well might that kind of compromise the quality but as it turns out even when something uh, a wool blend it's blended polyester or something that's synthetic it doesn't necessarily mean it's low quality at all Mm -hmm. um, it actually could, as I said earlier, make the wool, make the fabric more durable and uh, more performance oriented. So not performance oriented in, in terms of athletic wear, but with, for example, the how fabrics, it wears. how it wears, exactly. Mm -hmm. So with the Tigas Petite dresses, they're all, you know, uh, either formal or professional kind of high-end attire but you can just live in them all day because there's it's so soft it's so comfortable it's um it doesn't restrict your movement you don't have to always adjust yourself adjust the dresses it fits the way it's supposed to and the only way that could be achieved was by going with a wool blend so did wool blends uh, I would say about 60, 66% of the wool, um, major fabric that I used was uh, were wool blends imported from Italian mills. 
I also, for the pinstripe fabric, that was hard to come across. And I really, really wanted a pinstripe option. Again, going back to that classic Wall Street corporate power look that I was thinking about. Um, and I came across a really good quality from a Japanese mill. And that one is actually a rayon blend. And it has the same feel and texture as the wool blends in the collection as well. And in the end, those ended up being really great options coupled with the very, very soft lining material that I used. It, it just kind of snugs in your body you know it accommodates for all your curves the dresses and the fabrics feel very breathable and also substantial nice yeah i think quality fabrics really make like they look luxurious and they feel luxurious and they last for a long time like yeah. you say so it's um the materials often especially with the silhouette that's fairly simple or structured the fabric can really make or break it. And you can, you can see kind of like the soft luster of the the material, even in the photos when I was yep. looking at your site. Yep, definitely. Um, so I'm curious why, like what influenced the decision to produce everything in New York? Are you, you're in New York? Are you in New York? Yes, I'm based in New York. A few reasons. So one personal and one uh, business-oriented slash ethical. Mm -hmm. The first, the personal piece. So I'm not originally from New York, but I came here about half my life ago and fell in love with the city. Really felt like it was where I belonged. And I went to NYU for undergrad. So I was really thrown into the city right away mm -hmm. from a very suburban and quiet life that I had before that. And it was it was great. I was just kind of able to access so many things I was not able to access other uh, otherwise. So I really love the city. I really love New York City and everything it stands for. In terms of the business reasons, I earlier uh, told you that when I did my master's, I did it in global policy. I'm not sure if I told you the topic, but I, mm -hmm. it was, yeah, global policy. And the thesis that I wrote was actually around labor uh, abuses in the garment industry, in the global garment industry. Oh, wow. And yeah, and it's actually, it's pretty, it's a pretty, um, depressing. I mean, that there's no other yeah. <laughs> way to say it. It's, it's, it, there's been a lot of progress. I, I wrote this thesis 10 years ago, even since then, there has been a lot of progress, lots of factories have certifications, there's auditing. The tough thing, though, is if your factory is far away, you can absolutely in any country, uh, or most countries still find uh, ethical, factory that treats its workers with dignity and pays them what they deserve. Mm -hmm. That's not something that's only possible in New York or in the US. It's possible elsewhere as well. However, yeah. yeah, there are so many layers of subcontractors and so many parts to the supply chain, the global value chain that makes up the fashion industry that neither you or the designer, retailer brand or the factory can really control what happens a few layers away. Mm -hmm. you, 
it's hard. It's hard to know, you know, and even, even brands with massive budgets, it's very difficult to know just how far the tentacles go. There are places where certain things, certain inputs in your, in your trims in um, just things that you wouldn't even think packaging things you wouldn't think about that could touch some part of the supply chain that is not in line with, um, with, good business ethics. So that was really the reason. And, you know, to being fully transparent, I can, the reason I chose to have the factory nearby was because I said, well, at least I can control that part, even though I can't control every single part of the supply chain that's provided all of the input into my, everything that I do for this brand, I at least can have weekly visitations or, you know, as often as I'd like, I could always go to the factory and see how they're working on the line, how they're working. They are, the factory that I work with is in the garment uh, district. They're a CFDA member. They're certified with the state of New York. So even on an official basis, I know that they have uh, good labor practices. And I also know them. And at this point, we have, you know, a close relationship. I go Mm -hmm. and I visit them. And I know that the artisans and the tailors that are working on my line are treated fairly and treated with respect. So that was a big part of it. And again, coupled with my just loving the city. And also, the, the one other thing was, a lot of imagery that I use or a lot of the look and feel of the brand is very high power uh, corporate, but it also has a lot of New York kind of symbols everywhere. And I didn't want to kind of have this extractive relationship with New York where I was just using it for branding purposes. I really wanted to be a full end-to-end kind of exchange where I was actually helping the economy, participating in the economy, helping the people that um, are making the line, making, again, making sure that they're treated fairly. And, and then after having the brand go to production, when using New York City, you know, iconography or symbolism in my line, I wanted it to be actually representative, representative of where the brand comes from and what it is. So I just wanted it to be very authentic. Nice. Yeah, those are all great reasons. And it is, I think, just really fun to be able to have that kind of relationship with your factory and be close enough that you can visit and get to know the people. And um, yeah, it's just like convenient for business reasons. And it's just really nice to be able to know like these are real people, you know them, you can see the working environment and and just have more of a relationship as a brand in a factory than just kind of sending sending your your patterns off to some unknown you know subcontractor most likely right yes absolutely and yeah it's you're right the relationships really matter and I think you know being a designer I always say in, just in general, I, I say either everything matters or nothing matters. And this is something I mm-hmm. say actually as a marketer and as a designer. So when working with um, stakeholders, whether it's in my marketing world or design world, when working with stakeholders that are not design oriented, it's hard for them to understand why you care so much about this little tiny detail. Mm-hmm. Uh, why does the font 
have to be this color on your website all the time? Why <laughs> do you always have to have this kind of stitching at the seam line? You know, that seems silly. It's a waste of time. Why are we? And I always say either everything matter, everything we do matters around, you know, whatever we're working on, or it just doesn't then, you know, why care about it? And I know that sounds extreme, but as someone who's super passionate and is very design oriented, um, that's that I really believe that. So coming back to having relation the relationships in uh, the, the brand that I'm producing and how I'm working with it. I think that stuff kind of matters. It, in, it informs how the garments are made. The, as I said, the garments are really high quality, not because of the high quality fab inputs and fabric, but because the people making them are highly skilled. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all of that is reflected in the pricing and, and in terms of being really transparent about that as well. It's all reflective of all the input, the costs, of the goods, of the labor, and also the costs of delivering the clothes um, through a very sophisticated kind of medium to make sure that the packaging, um, even any interaction the client or the customer has, whether it's with the website, the social media site, is very high quality in line with the clothes themselves. So all of the costs that go into that is what makes up the pricing. And I really say that these dresses are investment pieces because they're meant to really last and be with you for 10 years or more. And just having that kind of story, and I I really think that's why I am a big fan of slow fashion, high, high fashion, is because it just feels more meaningful and significant to have those clothes. Uh, each each of your garments, each of your um, items that you wear and you own has a story, has a has a mm-hmm. kind of a, a deeper background than something that, you know, you buy and throw away after three wears. Yeah, I think investment pieces are very much the, like you care more about them because yeah. you invested in it. And, you know, if you know kind of the backstory and how it's made or who made it or, you know, see... It's almost in in almost the same way that, you know, you were talking earlier about like what you wear to your job or what you wear when you're representing yourself to an important situation or group of people. It it's kind of sets the stage for how you want to be treated and packaging and kind of the whole experience surrounding the clothes and a brand is kind of the same thing for the clothes. Like it's setting the stage for this is this is the value of the clothes and, you know, we're taking great care to present them in a way that, you know, shows that they're deserving of this type of care and special treatment and appreciation too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That you put it perfectly. That's really it. Um, I just want the customer to know that a lot of thought goes into every single little detail. And that's mm-hmm. kind of my dedication and um, to the client, to the customer, to make sure, again, going back to that fitting room feeling, to make sure that whenever they're interacting with my pieces, they're on the opposite side of that feeling, as far away from it as possible. Just mm-hmm. that, you know, if I'm when I'm asked what's the best part of, so I, earlier I talked about the challenges and the downs, mm-hmm. but the ups are seeing it 
on, I mean, the first up was wearing the dress, the final version after the second round mm -hmm. and having it getting to that point of, yes, this is it. Now, uh, the perfectionist in me still said at the very end when it was it still. And I said, well, how about this? You know, and then my production manager said, we have to go to market. <laughs> and that was the time <laughs> Where I said, okay. And because it's also, you also sometimes have to be brave, right? You also have mm -hmm. to know when you should kind of move to the next stage. Because when you're working on something that you're very passionate about, you really want it to be perfect, but it goes out. And there, but there are levels of perfection. So I did yeah. hit that place of, yes, this is it. So any improvements after that, I said to myself can come once uh, we go out in the market. And actually it's more important that I decided to do that because that also allows the customer to inform the next iteration of the dress. And that's, that's exactly. really important to me too. Yeah. yeah. You know, with all the market research I, I've done, the ultimate market research is actually for people out there in the world to wear the dresses and give me feedback so mm -hmm. I mean it was again this is the great thing about having a great team a good team that you trust is um, I'm really happy that that I took that advice because yes now the cust now it's the customer's hands and now it's out there in the world and it's going to take a life of its own and and now it's going to be a matter of actually my customers are my consultants, you know, and I'm all mm -hmm. ears. And it's going to be a matter of balancing the feedback that I get um, with uh, the the vision. But at this point, it's it's interesting because I I have a vision, but at this point, it's my customer and the vision are equally important and maybe the customer mm -hmm. even more so, you know, it kind of like now you have a double priority, whereas before it, it was like a single priority. That makes sense. Yeah. 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 And I think it would be really compelling to get feedback from your customers or like testimonials or reviews to hear how they feel when they try the dresses on. You know, like, because yeah. being in, you know, a customer demographic that often is frustrated and demoralized by having mm -hmm. to shop all day and try on stuff in, in the fitting room and look in the mirror and be like, this looks terrible on me mm -hmm. um, to hear, to get the feedback and hear like what specific things or what emotions come up for them when they try on your pieces and it fits them. Like that, I think yeah. could be amazing to hear. Um, Absolutely, yeah. I, uh, as I said, I kind of, um, I, I don't know if I covered this earlier. The first few times that I did see other people wearing it, um, mm -hmm. just the glow on their face was enough, mm -hmm. honestly. And uh, yeah, the ups of why do I do this? What's the most gratifying part of this is watching something that I made with my team go and serve someone because at that point once it leaves you know kind of that space of okay design product development design uh, production etc then mm -hmm. it's out there in the world and looking at how it um how people interact with the dresses how it makes them feel is really encouraging I actually um had someone today say uh someone who was wearing the who fit tried on the dress um she's an influencer said this is it fits me perfectly the waist 
seam hits right where it's supposed to and that never happens mm. or that doesn't happen with other brands that's a problem I usually have and that was just that you know that's it's just so the uplifting we, yeah. yeah 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 and that's one of the my favorite parts of my job too and, and I always look for it. it's like I know the fit is good if the fit model or the designer whoever's trying on the piece you can tell by their face if yeah. they like feel amazing in it. So I always look for that. It's like, you know, you can go through like the technical checklist of to look for different things on the sample, but that emotional connection of the person wearing it to how they feel about themselves in the clothing is really the end goal. So I always yes. look for that too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I want to hear, so how did the launch go? Like you, after, you know, you've been working on this, I think you, for a couple of years, kind of in development, I think I read on your site and yep. um, decided to be brave and and say, this is, this is perfect enough to launch and I can always make improvements later. Mm-hmm. Um, but as a marketer and then just as a business owner and having worked on this for a couple of years, what was it like to actually launch? How did that go? I would say it was surreal. It didn't feel um, real, like it's happening because for the longest time, it was something that I said, oh, this is what I'm working on. This is what I'm going to do. But then all of a sudden it was, or it is. And Mm -hmm. it felt really surreal. And after a few days of pinching myself, I realized that it was real. And um, after, you know, all of the congratulations and good uh, kind of feedback from friends and family, then I started, uh, then I started, that's where my marketing brain came and kicked in. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. Up until then, I had been operating, not strictly, but it was really my designer brain, but then marketing kicked in. And that's when I started looking at, uh, who, the potential partners who, who's a good thought leader or a good um, publication person that I would want to align this line with because mm-hmm. it's not as you know you've heard me say it's really not just about the clothes for me it's about what the brand stands for it's about these dresses are really meant to make a woman feel comfortable in her skin. So I want Mm -hmm. a woman to wear the dress and then forget that she's wearing the dress because I don't want it to be about the dress. I want it to be about her feeling confident and not being subconscious. And, uh, you know, on my website, I say, we dress you and then get out of your way. It's really, Mm -hmm. I'm not, even as a brand, I'm not really into dictating to people how they should feel about anything, quite frankly, except for how they should feel about their clothes and how they should feel when they're in the in their clothes. They should feel both powerful and feminine. They should feel sophisticated and elegant. And outside of that, I really just want to see, you know, for the future of this brand, what I would want to see is women wearing these dresses as their armor and then going out and doing the impressive things they do, even if they weren't wearing the dresses. So even outside of the dresses, you know, mm-hmm. are they in the arts? Are they in politics? Are they in the business world or what, whatever it is? And it doesn't have to be high profile in the way that we, you know, measure that. But any anything significant, anywhere where women are decision makers and 
and you look at the women and you're not necessarily saying, oh, she was wearing, and that's the thing, unfortunately, women in the, that are in the public uh, public eye, often people are commenting on what they're wearing, et cetera. But mm -hmm. I really want it to be, you look at that woman and you are intrigued by her co quiet confidence or not quiet confidence, just confidence mm -hmm. and uh, self-assuredness. And only after the fact do you real think, oh, yeah, that dress is also, you know, I really want it to be about the women. So since I've launched, I'm now, have, you know, of course, in addition to focusing on sales, I'm focused on thinking about who I want to align with, what kinds of women, what kinds of people. Um, and at this point, I'm really like highly focused on that. And I think trying to push sales and all of that will come. But mm -hmm. right now I'm really focused on aligning the brand with the right people. Nice. Yeah. Well, this has been super cool to hear your story and everything. I have one more question that I ask everyone at the end of the interview, which is, and you've kind of already answered it, but maybe just reiterate then. Um, if you could communicate one value to the world through the dresses you design, what would it be? You are more than enough. And you are perfect as you are. More emphasis are that on you are more than enough. So that's really, I mean, these dresses are a medium of mm -hmm. um, almost a blank slate mechanism of having women realize that about the, themselves. And um, yeah, I mean, my, I have, there's a slogan that, goes along with Tigas Petites, it's decided elegance. So like it, yeah, it means you're self-assured, you're confident, you're strong, and you're still elegant, not in a, you know, kind of steamrolling and abrasive way, mm -hmm. but in a way that you, you command attention without having to do anything, just your aura, your presence. So, and that comes from that self-assuredness, from that knowing that you are more than enough. Yeah, so true. Well, this has been great. Um, I really enjoyed you know, getting to know you and hearing the story behind the brand and, um, and the vision you had for it this whole time. Where can people find out more about you and shop tickets dresses online? Yeah. Uh, so you can find Tigas Petites on tiggaspetites.com and you can also find it on Instagram and Facebook. The handle on both is Tigas Petites. Wonderful. I'll put links to those in the show notes. Sounds good. Thank you so much, Allison. Yeah, thank you. That's all for today. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. And if you would like more episodes and resources like this about growing a fashion business that fits your customer, lifestyle, and values, send straight to your inbox. You can sign up for my email list at alisonhainis.com newsletter. That's A-L-I-S-O-N-H-O-E-N-E-S dot com slash newsletter. Again, thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join me for the next episode of How Fitting.